You're listening to TopCast, this old pinball's online radio. For more information, visit them anytime. www.marvin3m.com slash TopCast. Welcome to another edition of TopCast. Tonight, we're going to be speaking with a very special pinball designer and software uh, writer for Williams Bally. Um, we're going to give him a call right now. He's done uh, several very high-profile games for Williams, including Scared Stiff and Circus Voltaire, along with Star Wars Episode One and Ticket Tack Toe. And uh, it should be an interesting talk to hear uh, software perspective at uh, Williams Bally. We're going to give him a call right now. Special guest. Special guest. Special guest. Special guest. Okay, we're going to give a call right now to Cameron Silver, the software engineer at Williams Bally that was responsible for some very high-profile games. And let's give him a ring up right now on the phone. Cameron? Hey, how are you? Hey, how are you? Okay, so we're talking with Cameron Silver. He worked on Circus Voltaire. He worked, of course, he's well known for Circus Voltaire because he did the, the infamous Home ROM, which just turned that game into something that every pinball collector in the world wants now. Uh, Star Wars Episode One, Scared Stiff, and Ticket Tack Toe. And Cam, you're originally from Australia, right? Correct. I grew up in Melbourne. Okay, now, tell me about that. I mean, how was the pinball scene in Australia when you were growing up? Um, well, you know, I didn't. You know, as a kid, I didn't play a whole lot of pinball. Um, you know, I didn't really get into it until I was at college. You know, like like, oh, maybe even a senior in high school and uh, first year college. I used to go with my brother, who was a couple of years older than me. Well, of course, he still is. But <laughs> um, so I used to go with him and a bunch of his friends. They would go, uh, you know, maybe once or twice a week to this little arcade uh, in Melbourne and get together and play pinball. And that was around the time of, you know, Funhouse and Bride of Pinball. Okay, so and, I mean, how old were you at this time? Um, like probably around eighteen, nineteen years old. Okay, and then and and um. And that's where I really started learning, you know, the rules and, you know, not to flip both flippers at the same time and stuff like that. And, you know, that's how I got into pinball. Are you a pretty good player? Um, I'd say I'm an, an above-average player, but probably only marginally mar- marginally above average. Okay. Um, so, like, I'm in a league here in Chicago, and I pretty much always end up in C division. But, you know, that's all right. Right, right. I'm, believe me, you're, I'm sure you can kick my butt. Well, I'm very inconsistent. I mean, I can I could play three games of circus in, you know, like 40 seconds total, and then, you know, I'll have one game that lasts 45 minutes, so. Hmm. Now, how did you get into, I mean, I you don't just walk into Bally Williams as a software <laughs> engineer. Obviously, no. you've got some well, history. <clears throat> um, because I, I liked pinball so much after playing with my brother and then, you know, getting my own friends involved in it, I, uh, started to, actually while I was in college, I had a part-time job there in Melbourne um, at an arcade. It was actually a fairly large chain of arcades um, throughout the whole country, but there were three stores within walking distance in downtown Melbourne, and that's where I was, I was based. And I was just, you know, maintaining the pinball machines down there. So you're just working on them, you're just fixing them at this point? 
Pretty much, yeah. Just just fixing them, and I love to play them too. And I was, I you know, I used to print out the the rule sheets from from RGP, and and you know, I, I printed them out and I had them all in little plastic pockets behind the counter, and you know, with signs on all the games saying, you know, if you want to read the rule sheets, go and ask for them, and blah 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 blah. Um, you know, there was this, there was, you know, a a growing collection of regular players would would come and play the the machines because well. First of all, the, the big store in downtown Melbourne used to get um, sample games um, off of, you know, really early. Like, we had the first Adams Family in Australia, and we had, um, you know, we used to get the new uh, Bally Williams games often before many places in the U.S. did. So um, there were times where even I could write rule sheets for new games because I would see them often before, you know, lots of other people. So that was kind of cool, and, and so I was right there in the industry, in the, um, in the pinball scene, I guess, in Melbourne, um, which was a lot of fun. And, hey. and at the same time, I was also uh, fairly vocal on Rec Games Pinball. And, and I remember it was one day in 94, probably early to mid-94, where um, there, was, there was, you know, one of several discussions going on about Star Trek Next Generation that Dwight actually responded to personally. And of course, you know, I was a geek, so I emailed Dwight, and I'm like, hey, you probably have no idea who I am, blah, 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 but I think he did a great job on, you know, Star Trek, Getaway, and Terminator 2, which were all, you know, three of my favorite games at the time. Yeah, they still are. And so, so Dwight replied, which, which surprised me. Of course, now that I know him, it doesn't surprise me at all, because he's a, he's a terrific, terrific guy. But, but, you know, we entered into a, you know, fairly, you know, lengthy email discussion, um, just about pinball and the design industry and stuff like that. And um, there was one message that I that I sent him that um, I was talking about how I was planning at the end of that year. That was 1994. I was planning on coming to the U.S. and and he said, "Oh, you know, it'd be cool if you were coming through Chicago. You know, you could you know you could get a tour of the factory." And I and I replied something like, "Oh yeah, you know, maybe I could even work with you guys if there's a god." Ha ha ha. And he thought I was being serious. So in his response to me, he said, you know, well, I was talking to Ted Estes, who's the head of our software department, and he said, if you're interested in working here, send, send us your resume. And I thought, oh, okay. You know, I didn't <laughs> think it would go anywhere, but I sent the resume and I started talking to Ted, and Ted said, if you're in Chicago, come around for an interview. So, of course, I, I changed my plans, um, you know, to come through Chicago. Now, you were working, did you work for a radio station or something in Australia, too? Oh, uh, just a college radio station. Okay. Um, and I did a tiny little bit of volunteer work for community radio, but, but I didn't really do much on-air stuff uh, for them. But um, that, my, my, that's all going to... Most of the on-air stuff I did was for the college station. But that's all going to tie in later to something that you, that you did, and we'll talk about that in a bit. So you come to the U.S., you go, you go and you talk to, you talk to Ted, and, and, and you talk to, to Keith, and of course, uh, Keith was a, the software designer for the games you mentioned, and Ted was the head of the department. And how did that go? Well, it, it was weird because, you know, leading up to, to the interview, I thought it was more of a tour. But as it got closer and closer, I realized, you know, this is a real interview. So, I, you know, I did the whole thing with the suit and the tie and, the, you know, getting your hair cut and all, all of that stuff that you do before an interview. And, and I went in for that day, and, and it was grueling. It was absolutely grueling. I mean, I was shuffled from office to office. I went, you know, from, from you know, Ted and Dwight and Tom Uban and Bill Grupp and, I, I spoke mainly to the programmers, not to any of the designers, but, but still, I mean, some of these people, like Lewis, you know, Lewis and I had been talking on, on RGP and um, through email, you know, for years. And so, so you know, it was great to, to catch up with them, and I went out for lunch with them all, and then, 
you know, I went, I went back to, to um, my friend's place where I was staying and just, you know, sort of had a heart attack. But um, it, it was amazing. I mean, just to see it all. And I didn't think I'd get the, you know, particularly before the interview, I didn't think I'd get the job. And I didn't think I'd leave Australia and come to Chicago and start working on pinball. I mean, that's like, you know, that was like my dream job. And no one ever actually expects their dream job to you know, come to fruition. So how good of a software programmer were you at this time before you started working there? I, ha- I hadn't even graduated from college yet. I was, you know, my last my last semester of college was, um, you know, the uh, early '95. I finished in, you know, March. Sorry, I finished college in like June of '95, and I was at Williams in January of '95. And were you uh, in at college? Were you, uh, you know, just, um, uh, majoring in software? Yeah, I was. I was uh, getting a computer science degree, and uh, pr- primarily I uh, was taking uh, computer programming classes. And what was the name of the school? Uh, the school is the Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology, abbreviated to RMIT. Huh. So you come over, and I mean, have you done any assembly language programming prior to this? We had done uh, one semester of assembly language programming in first year that I loved. I absolutely loved it. And that was part of the appeal of, of Williams, was that it was all in assembly. Cameron, you absolutely suck. I can't believe you walked into this. <laughs> you know, well, see, I mean, that's the thing. They initially turned me down. Oh, they, they did. They they turned me down because you know I, I I had no work experience. I hadn't even finished college yet, and they you know there's no way they're going to pay for some kid to you know to move from Australia to the U.S. who's had no work experience and blah 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 blah. blah. Yeah, they got to so, sponsor you for a green card too, right? right? Right. So I you know I I called their bluff. I said. I said to Ted and Larry, you know, if, if I get myself to Chicago, will you give me a job? And, and they said yes, probably thinking, oh, there's no way he's going to do that, but at least we'll look good, you know. So, so I did, and, and, you know, I paid, well, with my parents' help, we paid, you know, for the moving expenses, we paid for the, the, the I, didn't, I didn't start out with a green card, I started out with what's known as an H-1B visa. Right. We, I, don't, I don't know if it's the same now, but back then that's basically a visitor's visa that permits you to work. Right, right. But it only permits you to work at one place. So I was one place for a set period of time, right? Beg your pardon. Set one place for a set period of time. Yes, the the visa expires after I think three years, but then you can extend it for for another three years. (laughs) Man, because you know I was um, I was a sixty five oh two assembly language programmer for years, and I put out a bunch of commercial products and stuff, and I would have never thought to do what you were doing. I mean, it would have never well, think, even crossed my mind. Was, right, I think part of it was that I was, you know, 21 years old. And you know what you're like when you're 21 years old. Oh, I can do anything, you know. I can, uh, you know, sure, I'll move across the world by myself. I don't care. This is a once, in, you know, I'm sure it would happen now. Like if someone in, you know, like Greenland offered me an amazing job, I'd be like, well, you know, I've got the mortgage and I've got a car and I've got all my stuff, you know. Oh, well, nah, don't worry about it, you know. Right. But back then, I mean, I was still living with my parents. I had, you know, I had nothing, nothing to lose by coming over here and trying it out. So, so when you came over here, where did you first live? <clears throat> I lived with, uh, for like a week and a half with uh, one of the other programmers at Williams. Uh, was that Duncan? No, that was, uh, that was Craig Silla. Okay. And, um, and he, had, he had a townhouse up in Palatine. And so I just, you know, during the day, um, he'd go to work and drop me at the metro st- at the metro stop, and I just took the train down, you know, from Palatine down to like Arlington Heights, 
and and um, Mount Prospect and Desplaines, and I just looked for apartments in all those little towns and ended up finding one in Mount Prospect. <clears throat> wow. And so, you know, two weeks later, I moved into, you know, I was renting this apartment and I moved in, and then I started at, at you know, then I started work. I really wanted to find my own place first because, um, you know, I, I felt like I was in, you know, I, I didn't know Craig at all. It was, it, he, you know, it was really, really nice of him to offer to, to put me up. I didn't, you know, I'd never really spoken to him online or anything because I didn't know him at all. Yeah, you're sleeping really on his couch, to, right? <laughs> you're sleeping on his couch. <laughs> Pretty much. I was, you know, he, he was just in this one-bedroom townhouse and, and he had a fold-out couch and that's where I was sleeping. So when you get to Williams, what was the first day like? Um, <laughs> I, I remember the first, I didn't have a desk. I, actually, I may have had a desk or at least a table. I didn't have a computer. I didn't have a game or anything. But um, the uh, the pinball system there, the software, was really well documented and printed out in this nicely bound book. So I just remember sitting in the office, just looking through this thing, you know, all day, just just you know, well, I wonder how they did this, and you know, looking up, you know, system calls and and you know stuff like that, how to do lamp effects, how to do display effects, and so on. And it was it was amazing, and just you know, getting to know my colleagues and and stuff like that, and. So you're, and, you know, like like pinching myself every thirty seconds to make sure that you know I, I haven't you know fallen asleep somewhere. So you're talking <laughs> about Apple, the at what it, what is it, Advanced Pinball Programming Language Environment? Yeah, something like that. I don't exactly recall what it stands for, but yeah, something like that. I and mean, that, the OS was called Apple. Yeah. Yeah, and that's Larry Demar's baby, right? Exactly. And did he ha- he had everything all well documented, huh? Yep, yep. And and Ted took over from that. Um, Ted Ted. Ted and Larry are, are very similar programmers. They're, they're, they're terrific programmers, borderline geniuses, and you know they're very, very disciplined in you know how they write their code, how they structure everything, and and very much so uh, for documentation too. So everything was really well documented. Uh, I've not worked anywhere since that has that has their code as well documented and as well laid out and just as well written as that. Now, granted, you know it's a fairly small system compared to the stuff I've used since, but Still, I mean, it says a lot on their part. Right, right. So you you walk in there, you got, you, you know, you got a desk, no computer. How long was it before you know you actually felt like they actually, you know, assimilated you into a design team and and giving you you know work to actually get done? Um, yeah, I don't remember the exact exact time frame. I mean, I'm sure I I got set up within the first week with a computer and everything. Um, I think I had Larry's old computer, the computer he used to actually write, you know, Funhouse and the operating system and stuff like that, which everyone was like, oh, you're using Larry's computer as a very special computer. I'm like, yeah, whatever. It's just a computer. It's been reformatted like 17 times anyway. But um, so the very first thing they did was they, they wheeled in a demolition man and, and, you know, showed me how to set it all up and compile the code and stuff like that and just said, you know, just go nuts. You know, do whatever you want to do. You know, get used to the. You know, write a couple of lamp effects, write a couple of display effects, change. You know, add add some rules, take out some rules, write some new rules. You know, whatever you want to do, just to to get your feet wet. And, and did you do just, all that? Just, sorry. Did you do all that? Oh yeah, yeah. I, I think the the biggest thing I did on on the demo man was um, uh, add something akin to the uh, whitewater vacation jackpot. And, and I forget what, I think you had to have played all the multi-balls, get demolition time, um, a few other things, you know, maybe, maybe complete ACMAG. I mean, I don't remember the rules for Demo Man too well. Um, but there were like four or five things that you had to have done, and then I put in this big effect and this big jackpot and stuff like that. So, 
Did that end up in any version of code that we no, see today? No, that was all. That was all just. No, we never burnt any ROMs or anything like that. This this was long, really, before home ROMs or anything. So. So was Demo Man? Demo Man was, of course, Ted's one of Ted's projects. Exactly, and I think that's why I ended up with a Demo Man in my office because um, you know Ted had put me in an office across the hall from him, so that you know he was right there if I needed any questions and so on. Hmm. And was that? Uh, I mean. How exactly does that work? I understand that there was like you got a computer and then you got some interface to a module that plugs into the ROM space on the CPU board. Yeah, there was that. Well, there was. Um, we used to plug uh, just some RAM into the ROM socket, and there's a uh, there's a write pin on the ROM socket as well. You know, which which we used you know to to write the data into the RAM, and then there was a hardware device that actually plugged into the CPU socket on the on the CPU board. Okay. And then, and then into that we plug the, um, you know, that gets plugged into the computer through a parallel port for sending uh, data and through to a serial port for sending, you know, commands. So instead of actually burning EEPROMs and plugging them in, you basically just do some sort of a, you know, a, a, a DOS send command or, or or something. Pretty much, yeah. We had we had a bunch of DOS tools, um, and one of them just just you know you compile the code, it, it creates the image, and then this other tool. Um, basically, just you know, sent it all down the parallel port into the uh, into the RAM on the CPU board. Now, what were we and using for a compiler? Oh, uh, it was a sixty-eight oh nine compiler. You know, I don't I don't remember. Uh... Was it a commercial product? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. so it wasn't something that Larry wrote. No, no, we used uh, we used Brief to edit the source code, and we used this uh, assembler. I, I don't. I mean, I can find out, and I can email it to you. No, it's just I'm just kind of curious about this. The um, yeah. you know about the whole procedure from a software point of view. You know how how this. You know somebody once told me that you guys had like a base empty game. You know, yeah. like you had software that had two flippers, two slingshots, and three pop bumpers, and that's what you started. Like basically it every game. It wasn't with. even that. It was software that you that that. I mean, the empty game. You had you had to set up a little bit before it would before it would function. And the setup included, you know, how many, you know, tying, you know, flippers to flipper buttons so you could, you know, it was all, you know, the set, setting stuff up like this was, you know, there were, there were, it was basically like a blank form that you filled in. You know, how many flippers do you have? Which flipper buttons are they tied to? You know, which, you know, how, you know, for every jet you specified, you know, a switch and a coil and then, you know, the OS takes care of firing the jets for you and the same with the slingshots. And, um, we even had, we even had a fairly substantial um, the borderline on object-oriented, you know, or written in assembly, of course, um, what we call the multi-ball system that handled all the locks and the kickouts and the saucer and the trough and the auto-plunder and stuff like that. So the same thing. I mean, you could just, you know, for every kickout, you just specified, you know, the switch and the coil and what type of a device it was, and, and then you were good to go. I mean, in an afternoon, you could have a brand-new whitewood flipping. You know, there were no rules, obviously, but, I mean, you'd press start, it would plunge, stir the ball, you plunge the ball, you know, three balls per game and whatever. And it would you know. keep score and stuff, too? Uh, well, but you'd have to, you'd have to, you know, put scores on switches, you know. There, there, were, right. there were no uh, default uh, switches. So you assign a, a, a switch to be a particular score value or what have you. Well, it's, it, it wasn't so much like that. I mean, but you, you assign a function to get called every, every switch hit, and within that function you can apply a score value. And which is basically the beginning of your rules. Exactly, exactly. Okay, now, what about the dot matrix animations? How did that work? I mean, 
obviously when you started out with this you know empty game you, you probably had very minimal animations right all we had was um the uh, the the uh the score flash you know when you you know before you've scored anything and it just blinks your score on the screen um the the score sweep you know when you're actually playing and the the score sweeps on and off you know for the current player up right we had things like you know replay at we had a very basic attract mode that just said, you know, the text title of the game, um, you know, replay at, and and the number of credits, and I think that's it. You know, oh, and like the say no to drug screen and stuff like that was all built in. Right. Um, there was a default bonus count that just put up a score value and, and you know, brrr, punned, you know, counted it down real quick and applied that to your score, and that was it. Huh. Well, that's pretty cool. So yeah. then, after you got acclimated with the demo man thing, then you, your first assignment was Scared Stiff, right? No, my first assignment was Tic-A-Tac-Toe. Oh, it was, okay. And that was, that was sort of an accident because, um, you know, uh, Ted was slated to work on that with, uh, with Steve. And, um, uh, so how did that work? I think Ted was, was on vacation for a couple of days when they, uh, got the Whitewood done. And so they ended up bringing it up into my office. And I got it flipping and I'd actually started implementing the rules when Ted got back. And so Ted said, well, do you just want to work on this project? And I, you know, obviously could not say yes quickly enough. And, so, and how long, this was kind of a long project, right? Uh, actually, no, it was, it was pre, you know, compared to a full-on pinball, it was, it was pretty short. Like, I started probably just before Christmas um, in 95. So it would, have, it would have been, you know, like sometime in December. And um, we were at the show, at the trade show in, where was that? The trade show in Orlando in March, you know, with with a finished game, you know, for sale. So that was literally a, a you know, three, four-month project. And did you, I mean, how how are rules, were, were they done by committee? Were they just something you made up? Or how did this work? It, it depend. it all depended upon the design team. I mean, Tic-A-Tac-Toe, the rules were, were pretty much already um, designed, you know, by Steve. You know, he's like, and I think Larry probably had had a hand in it too. And and you know, we tweaked it once we had the game set up. We tweaked it, um, not so much the rules, but the presentation. You know how how the whole you know the holes on the playfield match to the holes up up the top, and how it's presented on screen and stuff like that, and 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 you know so on. Maybe, um, maybe we should back up a step and okay. talk about what Tic Tac Toe is, because I'm sure there's some people who who have never even seen the game and are not familiar with it at all. So. Uh, Tic-A-Tac-Toe uh, was a redemption game that um, Steve Kordak and, and a few other people wanted to, to, to try. And um, the, the basic goal was to get kids, you know, little kids, you know, playing a pinball-like machine to try and get them used to using flippers and, and balls and, you know, just a mechanical machine so that hopefully when they get a little bit older, they'll, they'll sort of graduate into real pinball. You know, because, you know, the market was, was, had already definitely, you know, started its downturn at that point, and we would, you know, we wanted to try and get new players interested. And so, um, Tic-A-Tac-Toe was, I mean, it was very simple. It was, it was a, uh, it was the size of, of, um, Safecracker. It was in a Safecracker cabinet, you know, the same Safecracker size play field, but with regular pinball sized flippers. It, it had inlanes, but no outlanes. It had passive slingshots, so there were no kickers, but there were switches. So, so you know, when the ball hit the slingshots, it would make sounds. Um, and then, in the in the center of the playfield, like where the mansion is on Adam's family, 
um, there was a tic-tac-toe grid with, the, you know, the nine lights numbered, you know, from one to nine. And then halfway up the playfield was a very steep ramp that was the entire width of the playfield with nine holes at the top of the ramp. And basically, each hole at the top of the ramp corresponded to one light in the tic-tac-toe grid. And um, for one coin, you had three shots at the holes. Hmm. And so you put your coin in, the ball kicks out. There was no drain. So, you know, between the flippers was just a, a little kicker. So the ball landed, you know, the, the ball would go between the kickers and then just kick right back out at you. So you weren't penalized for that. You know, you take a shot, the ball drops into a hole, the light comes on on the tic-tac-toe grid. You do that three times and then you put in more money and you continue. You had like 30 seconds, I think, to continue. Oh, so you could, uh, it didn't end the game necessarily. You could, it, it was like a buy-in. Exactly, exactly. Right, okay. And um, how successful was this game? Uh, the game was was successful. I mean, it makes a a lot of money on location. Uh, as far as redemption goes, it's probably only above average in the redemption world. But I mean, it out earned pinball like maybe three or four times over. <laughs> but um, the problem is the redemption world, especially back then, was very very different from pinball. Um, you know, like Williams, the factory, everything was set up to make games as quickly as possible and sell them as fast as possible and be done and move on to the next product. And, and that just doesn't work in the redemption world where, you know, you, you really want to just trickle games out, like, you know, maybe two or, two or three a day, which Williams just could not do, and so we ended up not producing the game. I think there were maybe only about 100 out there. Really? And, and you, you have one. And I think it would have been successful. But, um, you know, some, some friends of mine in Melbourne who I used to work with at the arcade there, I mean, they've still got some on location that, that make, you know, seven, $800 a week. So, Really? And, yeah. and they decided not to make this game? Exactly. Well, they couldn't, they couldn't do it profitably. Huh. You know, they, they weren't going to make, you know, 2,000 machines and just sit them in a corner for a year and a half while it, it took to sell them. Right. So. Right, right. So you, there's only about 100 of them out there? Yep. And you have one? I have one. Now, um... Okay, so you, when you finished up um, the TTT, mm-hmm. you went next. That was Scared Stiff next, right? Exactly, exactly. And Scared Stiff was, was um, uh, you know, I, I, I jumped on Scared Stiff, you know, pro- probably well after the halfway point in their development cycle. Um, they, I think they had just settled on the name. They had trouble finding a name, and I think it was um, uh, Greg Ferris who, who came up with the name and, uh, I mean, because most of the time it was just called Elvira 2, which, you know, is pretty dull. Right. And um, I think we were just starting to get some, some, some real prototype parts in and maybe even a screened playfield, something like that, um, when I started. And, and on Scared Stiff, you know, my role mainly was, was to do effects, you know, lamp effects, display effects. You know, I was, I was, I was sort of the second programmer. Um, I did a few rules. Uh, but, but mostly, mostly I was doing the, all the effects. Who was the key programmer? That was Mike Boone. Okay. And, and, and Scared Stiff was actually interesting because, you know, he, here I am, I, I get to Williams and, you know, with, you know, a month later I'm working with Steve Kordek, which, which, which sort of blew my mind. And then, you know, six months later I'm working with Dennis Nordman and Mike Boone, who were responsible for Whitewater, which is one of my all-time absolute favorite games ever. In fact, I own one, you know. And, and, you know, it was just crazy. It was, it was so crazy. I could not believe it. So. Now, halfway through Scared Stiff, though, wasn't there some design team issues or something? Something happened, right? 
Or is uh, that there not were correct? layoffs at Williams. Pardon me? There were layoffs. Right. So, yeah, that, was, <laughs> that wasn't a fun day at all. Um, it was a Thursday. It was supposed to be a Friday, but, but Williams, you know, in their infinite, um, you know, uh, incompetence, leaked the press release a day early. And, and so I get to work that morning and I, and, and there'd been rumors brewing for, for, for weeks and weeks and weeks leading up to it. Um, you know, which, which was terrifying to me because I didn't want to, you know, I just got there and I didn't want to lose my job and have to go back to Melbourne, you know. And so I get to, I get to work that morning and every, you know, Mike was what we called the early shift. Um, he would, he would get to work around seven and stay probably until like, you know, six or seven at night. And I would usually get to work at around, Nine or ten, and and again, stay until nine or ten at night. So he was always there when I would when I would arrive in the morning. So I come in and I walk into his office just to catch up and you know tell him about stuff I'd worked on the night before and find out what he was working on you know that morning and what we were going to do that day and blah blah blah. I walk in and he looks at me and he leans back in his chair. I'm like, what? He goes, guess what I heard on the radio this morning? I said, what? He said, I heard that Williams is going to be laying off fifty percent of their pinball department. And like my heart just sank, and it was right about then. Yeah, I mean it was it was on cue. It was like it was it was on cue, like we were in a sitcom. You know, right then his computer stops working, his phone goes dead, and like all hell breaks loose. So, so he was so one of the around, around he, the hall. Uh, someone had found a, a actually printed off the press release from from the net. You know, and, and that was being passed around, and no one knew what was happening. No one knew what was going on. You know, Ted and Larry were behind closed doors all morning. You know, and finally we were in um, Brian Eddy's office, which was next door to my office, which was right near Ted's office, and we were all just sort of chatting. And and Mike just just confronts Ted and like, you know, do you know anything about this? And Ted's like, yeah, yeah, I'm gonna have to talk to everyone about it, starting with you. And he points directly at Mike, who sort of like took a step back, and they disappeared into Ted's office, you know, for a couple of minutes and whatever. <clears throat> now that day, the the scared stiff team had planned to go downtown to do a recording session um, with uh, Elvira. And we couldn't, we couldn't cancel that, you know, the show must go on type of thing. So Mike comes out of Ted's office. He knows he's going across the street to Midway to work on, his bro- to work on Mortal Kombat with his brother and become immensely rich. So he's happy. And, and you know, none of us, you know, me, um, Dennis, Mark Weiner, Greg Ferris, none of us know our futures at all while we get in, this car, while we get in the car and head down to Navy Pier to the recording studio to do this thing uh, with Elvira. Well, so we're sitting in this recording studio, pacing up and down, you know, talking to the engineers about what was happening and everything. And, and, and then, you know, something had happened on Elvira's end and she couldn't show up. So we basically wasted like an hour and a half down there. So we get back to work and as we're walking in, we see people who used to be our colleagues walking the other way with boxes of all their stuff, you know, which was, which was just... <laughs> sort of, you know, really depressing. And we, we come back up into engineering and it's sort of very quiet and subdued and people's doors, you know, some people have already gone home and stuff like that. <clears throat> and uh, and so nervously I make my way into Ted's office and that's where he tells me that, you know, I'm going to be working with John Papaduke on his next game and blah, 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 and that Lewis will be working with Pat and so on and so on. So. Huh. So, I mean, you kept your job through this. Yes, yes. And I think probably... Me keeping my job had more to do with the fact that I was extremely cheap <laughs> rather than my talent. I mean, I was talented. I'm not going to deny that. But I think at that point they were looking more at money than they were at talent. So, so did did Mike, the guy that was working on Scared Stiff, he mm-hmm. he was gone. He was off the project. 
Uh, well, no, he, they, they didn't kick him off the project. He 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 wanted to stay and finish Steph, and they let him. You know, so that you know, so he stayed and finished Steph. And once Steph was was in production, he moved across the street. Okay, did you say something about his brother? Yeah, uh, Mike Boone's brother is Ed Boone, the creator of Mortal Kombat. Oh, and and those guys worked together on that project. Uh, well, they didn't work together on the original Mortal Kombat, but once once Mike moved across the street, then they've been working on Mortal Kombat ever since. And interesting, um, Ed Boon, the creator of Mortal Kombat, is the voice of Rudy on Funhouse. Really? Yep. Now, did he become very wealthy from working on Mortal Kombat? Oh, I don't. I, I, you know, I don't know. I'm. Just, it's just a running joke. You know? It's just a running joke. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so so now you you come in, things are a little depressed. It, it was the was the Williams Pinball division really slashed fifty percent? Uh, I don't think it was as much as fifty percent, but it was it was pretty significant. And was and it mostly designers or mostly software guys or a little of each? Actually, the software guys fared pretty well. It, it seemed to be more of the designers, and again, I think that that goes back to the uh, money thing because I think the designers were paid a fair amount more than the programmers. Gotcha. Okay. So now you're you're um, you're over on Papadouk's team right yep. from the dead start with Circus Voltaire, right? Oh yeah, yeah. And, right. and this was a you know if I was amazed earlier to be working with you know Steve Kordak and then with um, Dennis Nordman, you know I was reached a whole new level of astonishment to sit down with John Papadouk and a pinball design team and have him like unroll a blank sheet of paper on the table and look at everyone and go, so what game do you want to make? <laughs> That's really how it started? Yeah, that's really how it started. I mean, he didn't even have a name or a concept or anything? Oh, he, he had some ideas, but he was, he was very much, you know, um, you know, listen to everyone on the team and then make his decision based on all the information he can get. You know, he, he, was, he was the complete total opposite of a dictator. Huh, okay. So when he laid this sheet of paper out, did you guys all take out your Sharpies and start writing on it? Uh, pretty much. It was, it was like, you know, a whiteboard on the table. We all made notes. We all wrote. Um, uh, I, I don't remember how, you know, where the circus theme came from. I think it was, I think it was probably his suggestion. Oh, it, it, I can't imagine it would be anybody else's. Who would, <laughs> right, right. Who would design? Um, some a... of the, some of the other suggestions, I think we were talking about maybe doing like a, uh, like a space pirate game, but, but the, the space pirates are all these hot, like, voluptuous vixen women, you know, and, and all sort of, you know, uh, very tongue-in-cheek, you know, stuff like that. Um, and that, that actually came up again when we were thinking about doing Star Wars, too. Did that would have any influence, at, you know, from Big Bang Bar at the time? Um, no. Because that no, was, Big Bang I'm Bar... To, I was trying to think if Big Bang Bar was out at the time, but yes, it was, because I remember Big Bang Bar was on test uh, with Scared Stiff, too. So I don't, you know, I, it didn't have anything to do with Big Bang Bar. Okay, um, I mean, to design a pinball game with the theme of a 17th-century French philosopher, <laughs> only John could do that. Yeah, I, I, I mean, it just when he presented that to you guys, did you all kind of look at each other and go, uh, "What?" You know, was it like one of those? Um, a little bit, but what won me over. Was, was when he, he turned to me and he said, you know, what do you think about putting, you know, a neon tube in the game? And, and you know, this, this goes back to when I was a kid. I used to love neon and, like, illuminated signs. And, and I used to pretend I had my own company called, like, Cameron Neon, you know, make, that, that when I grew up I was going to make neon signs for people. And so the, the, the chance to work with neon now was, was incredible. 
So, so that won me over. And, you know, to be honest, I, I didn't think it would be a bad theme. I thought we could have had a lot of fun with it, you know. So I, I certainly wasn't opposed to it, and I didn't think anyone else was. Well, what and, was... Um, when we started talking about, you know, artistic concepts, you know, with lots of sort of swirls and curves and stuff like that, I was pretty excited. Was everybody else's reaction? I mean, did nobody else just kind of said, you know, maybe John... You know, maybe the idea with uh, the half-naked girls is really a better one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I think we were we were all pretty psyched to do the uh, to do the circus thing. And, and how uh, was the reaction to everybody else at at WMS at the time? Um, as far you know, I wasn't aware of any negative reaction. I mean, I'm sure I think there were some people a little bit nervous. You know, more so in the direction of the art rather than the theme itself. Now, you know, why? The, what do you mean the direction of the art? Just the color, just the color scheme. You know, green and purple and stuff like that. Yeah, because green has had a tradition in the pinball industry as um, being equated to a commercial failure. For some reason, green has never done well on a pinball machine in a commercial perspective. Um, I, I don't know why that is, or you know, maybe it's just bad luck. The, the only game I know that's green is Fishtails. Oh, World Cup soccer's green too. Well, I wouldn't call either of those games really green. Um, the only game that I can think of that's green, green, is uh, like four million BC from Bali in the seventies. Um, right. Everything else is like, I mean, yeah, World Cup had some green on it, but not a lot. Certainly didn't have a green neon tube in it. No. <laughs> we'll be right back with Cameron Silver of. Williams Valley Software Engineering. This portion of TopCast is brought to you by Pin Game Journal, covering the world of pinball. Visit them online at www.pingamejournal.com. Okay, we're back with Cameron Silver from uh, Williams Valley Software. Now, how much of the rules did you have control over in, in CB? I, I had control of most of the rules. And in fact, John, John and I, um, you know, did most of the playfield layout together as well. Um, now he did all of the, you know, the technical drawings and the CAD stuff. But we would sit down together and, and talk about, you know, what we wanted to do on the playfield. Like I remember suggesting that that I wanted, you know, locked balls to stay above the playfield so you could see them. And 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 I really wanted to do the, especially once we had the the um, the circus theme. I wanted to do the jugglers with the. Initially we had four sources for the jugglers. and then that went down to three, and now it's, you know, then then finally we had to axe the third one for production. Wow. Um, and stuff like that. So, you know, a lot of the playfield layout, you know, we did hand in hand. Now, who was the the, the lady's voice in Circus Voltaire? Who is that? Uh, uh, she was some talent that we hired. Um, she may have been the same voice. In Theater of Magic. I think so, yeah. I'll have to, uh, again, I can double check with John and shoot you an email. I, I mean, was she, it seemed odd to me, like, I'll play Theater Magic and I'll play Circus Voltaire, and it's the same female voice, and I, I've never heard that before in a pinball machine. So, well, you know, we, we often use the same male talent in several games, too. Really? Um, you know, the, the, the male voice in Scared Stiff is the same as the announcer in Attack from Mars, I think, and um, several other games. I think um, NBA Fast Break and, and World Cup, I think it's all the same guy. Okay, interesting, interesting. Yeah. So now you're you get to the point where the playfield is screened in the design process, and and the cabinet is screened. Oh, 
you know, I forgot to ask you. This backs up a little bit. Sorry to break the train of thought. The RRR on the side of the scared stiff cabinet. Uh-huh. Tell us about that. Um, <laughs> Sorry to change gears. Yeah, that's all right. Um, well, you know, it's, I have to check my own game because I don't remember the, ex, the actual wording here. It stands for uh, Real Raunchy and Ribbed for Your Pleasure. Right. Rated RRR. Now, um, the, I mentioned the community radio stations in Melbourne. One of them um, that I still listen to, they stream online now, is, is called Triple R. And they're, they're, uh, their call sign is RRR, and it's 102.7. And so I had a Triple a R sticker up on my desk at work. And there was one day that, uh, that, that you know, I was still working on Stiff, obviously, and, and Greg comes into my office. And we're just chatting, and suddenly he stops, and he's looking at the sticker. And I look at him, and I look at the sticker, and I say, you know, Greg, what's going on? And he's like, where did you get that? And I explained to him the radio station, blah, 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 blah. He goes, you know, has that been up all along? I said, yeah. He goes, all right, come with me. And, and so I get up, and I follow him down to, to his desk in the art department, and he points to his draw, you know, pencil sketch of the cabinet for Scared Stiff. And there's the Triple R logo on it. He goes, I just drew that. And I said, that's the same as the logo. He goes, I hadn't seen the logo. So it was just a complete coincidence that they look so similar. Huh. But eventually yep. you ended up putting the scratch mark through it, you know, the claw mark through the RRR. Why? Uh, I think the thought was that it was a little bit too unfamily friendly. Oh, really? That was yep. the only reason? Yes. Okay. And, and so it was easier to cover it with the claw mark than to remove it from the artwork. Gotcha. And we wanted we wanted to keep a little reference to it because I think it's kind of cool. Right, I thought it was cool too. Well, yeah. sorry, that was a, a gear changer. Sorry about that. That's back, okay. Back to the Circus Voltaire thing. Um, so you've got a screen play field, and and when people saw this, were they still real enthusiastic about the game? Everybody still okay? Uh, yes, and in fact, people were, when when we put the game at, at the bottom of the stairs, we had um, engineering at Williams was upstairs. And so we had some space at the bottom of the stairs um, that we put all new games, you know, for a couple of weeks before we go out on test. It's sort of like an internal test. Um, you find a, a whole, you know, boatload of bugs, you know, because people play the game very differently than you do when you're just testing stuff, um, you know, tweaking rules and getting feedback and stuff like that. So when we went to the bottom of the stairs, people, people really, really liked the game. I mean, there were, you know, there were obviously things that they wanted to change and blah, 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 blah. But... Um, Marketing was so worried that Circus Voltaire was going to take sales away from, of all things, medieval madness, that they didn't want to put the game on test in Chicago because they didn't want operators to see it. They didn't want the, the net community to see it or anything like that. So they put the game on test in, of all places, Waukesha, Wisconsin. And this was, you know, this was in, uh, it was probably like June, like right at the start of summer, which is a terrible time to go on test, especially at a bar in a small town in bloody Wisconsin, right? <laughs> so we go on test in Wisconsin, and in the first two weeks, we, the, the game just does nothing, absolutely nothing, because, you know, the bar's dead, everyone's on vacation. And, um, and, and, and I think the die was cast at that point. Marketing did a complete 180, and they decided the game wasn't good at that point, and then, you know, that was sort of, that was sort of the end of it. I mean, you know, I didn't earn very well on, on location anyway, um, but, but just... You know, the fact that they were worried that it was going to take sales away from Medieval Madness just makes me laugh. And it, it shows what sort of marketing department we had to deal with over there. So, well, But, I mean, you did. They made the game. 
I mean, it wasn't like you know you you know the game didn't get made; it got made. Right, but but you know, Popeye got made, so so <laughs> they never cancelled projects. Oh, well, they never cancelled. I mean, once you once you've built prototypes and you're on test, I mean, you've spent ninety nine percent of your development budget anyway. You might as well make the game. And was um, was Papa Duke pretty disappointed? We were all disappointed. You know, we we, we were all disappointed, and. Um, you know, you, I'm sure you've heard of the, the ball hang-up kit for Circus. Right. Um, when we, for Pinball Expo, which was right at the start of production, we already had these kits in hand, and we installed them on all the machines there at uh, Pinball Expo. And um, bloody part sales didn't, didn't start sending them out until almost the end of the year to people. So, so at least poor customers had these games on location that balls were getting stuck. And granted, we, probably, we should have found them and fixed them earlier, but still... You know, we had a fix for it, and the stupid company sat on them rather than sending it out. All you know, and that all goes back to the bad earnings the first week or two on test. You mean that it just like gave people the wrong attitude about the game? Yeah, yeah. Huh. Now, if it was on test in Chicago, do you think things would have been different? Uh, you know, I still don't think the game would have would have you know been a star, but I think it would have earned better than it did. Well, is there anything that you guys could have done to change? you know, the artwork or something to, to make it more appealing? Or do you think that was the issue? Um, I, I don't know exactly what the issue is. I think, you know, part of the issue certainly is the rules. I mean, I think the rules are really good if you're a total bonehead and can't play pinball at all. You know, you hit the ringmaster, he comes up, he, he you know, talks to you a little bit, and then your game's done. Um, the rules are really good if you're a good player. You know, you can stack the multi-balls and you can set things up and the machine has orgasms all over the place. You know, but if you're a normal person, like an average player, I think the game is kind of dull. And, I, you know, I think that hurts us. I think the bright colors and the outrageous artwork hurts us a little bit too. So, I mean, there, there were a few things. Hmm. Now, the game came out in 97, like you said, right? right? In the fall of 97. Yes. You wrote the home version of the software years later, right? Um, I actually was working... All right. After Pinball shut down in 99, I still didn't have my green card. I just had, I was still on my H-1B visa. But Williams was working on getting a green card for me. So I was stuck. I had to stay at Williams, which of course then was WMS, you know, the slot machine. Right. So um, to stop from going mad working on slot machine software for a year and a half, I tinkered with circuits. And and it, it it's funny because, you, you know, in your email you said that I was a cult hero for, for the Circus Home ROM. Absolutely. And, and it, it's funny because I really, I did the ROM for myself. I did the changes I wanted to make for, for me and stuff like that. And at the time, I had no real intention of, of releasing it. But I, I remember I'd, I'd sent a copy to, you know, a few close friends of mine who had circuses, and they all loved it. And they said, you know, you should release this. The, the people who own circuses would love it. And, and I was nervous about it because... You know, I, I didn't know how stable it was. I mean, I don't, you know, three people had only, had been playing it and something, and stuff like that. So, so I was nervous about releasing it, but then a friend of mine, I think it was Corey, finally talked me into it. And so I contacted, um, Craig Hassel. Um, he's got the circus web page with the owner's list and stuff like that. And I right. started talking to him about it. And, um, through him, I got the names and addresses of a few other people with circuses and I sent them all copies. And the, the the game seemed to behave, you know, fairly well. I mean, the 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 most obvious bug is that it doesn't know the day of the week correctly. 
And I sort of figure, well, you know, we can live with that. Yeah, no that's taking, pretty minor. <laughs> right. No one's taking hard audits. I don't think anyone's going to look at timestamps or anything like that. It's a bit of a bummer for the circus member high score table that it doesn't show the correct day of the week. But, you know, we can probably live with that. And so so then Craig, again, you know, sort of pushed me just a little bit harder to, to release it. So. Did, um, did you have to get approval from Papa Duke to do this? Uh, no. Uh, not not officially, no, but I remember talking to him about it, and he's one of the few who had a copy of it early on. And so he, he had no it. issues with you doing this? No, not at all, not at all. Okay. I mean, he loves the game just as much as I do, so... Okay. And, I mean, when you... Yeah, when you... I can't just remember when that post came out that it was available, and then everybody kind of getting it and burning it, and just, like, the comments were like, wow, this is, like, a totally different game now. Yeah. You well, know... It's funny because, um, you know, all those people went, you know, in one instance from old software to new software, and, and I never experienced that because when I was working on I mean, I'd work on it for maybe an hour or two every couple of weeks and just do a little feature here and there. <clears throat> and, and most of the stuff I was doing sort of on the side at work, so I didn't even have a game there to test stuff. So I would, I would make some changes and, and I would burn a ROM and come home and try it out. And so for me, the progression from old version to new version was really slow, so I never got to see this trans- transition. So I was surprised at how, how people were reacting. Yeah, the reaction was unbelievable. People loved it. You know? And now, if, if you had your choice, I mean, would have you implemented all these things in, in, the, uh, in the code when the game was you know, prior to test or whatever? Well, several of the things were originally in the code, like um, the copycat video mode was in there, um, the the skill shot with pick your award was in there. Uh, what else? Um, you know, so so those were already in there. I just I just you know went back and turned them on and added some sounds and a little bit of polish and stuff like that. Um, you know, the reason we took Simon Simon Says out was because we were worried about you know potential problems from I think it's Hasbro who has the the, the actual Simon game, right? Right. Um, we didn't want problems for them, and since it's not circus-themed at all, I sort of figured, yeah, it's probably just easy to, to take it out. Um, the skill shot was, was that was an attempt to make the game a little bit less confusing for people um, because we found most people would just plunge the ball when they, at the start of the game, and they were just getting random stuff, and it just, you know, when, when random stuff starts happening, it makes the game hard, more difficult to learn when you're just a novice player. Right. Right. Now... Uh, did, what about the animations? Did you have to add any animations? Um, I don't think I did. I think everything, I think animations and sounds, everything was already, was already in there. You know, I, I remember when, um, in, in development, when we were pruning, you know, pruning the sounds, because we always have a, we always, um, you know, there's always a struggle because the, uh, the, the, those 8 meg ROM chips on the soundboard are pretty expensive. So you always want to try and get down to as few as possible. And so we had to, I think we, for most of development, we were in four 8 meg ROMs and we wanted to get down to three. So we're going through and we're cutting out sound. Um, but I made sure to leave a few speech calls and a few sound effects in there, you know, um, because I wasn't sure if I was going to need them, you know, before the end of development. You know, the, the sound ROMs are actually masked, which means you have to, you have to lock them down you know, a month or two before production starts. Right, and then have them sent out because a masked ROM is cheaper than an EEPROM. Exactly, exactly. Right. And so, so you know, when I got, ta- when I got 
down to doing the home ROM, I found a few extra speech calls and stuff like that. So I used them, but they were already in the ROM. And um, there was, I don't recall any additional uh, animation. I think really the only, the only um, you know, artwork that changed on the screen was uh, sometimes during the match, instead of the pie hitting the, the little clown guy, you'll see a cow. But it's the same cow that, you, that I use in the video mode anyway, so that was already in there. So. Is, as far as animations go, did you do your own animations or was there an animation artist? No, no, I can't even draw stick figures. Um, <laughs> the, the dot matrix animations were done, um, at least while I was there, by, by two guys, um, Brian and Adam, both extremely, extremely talented. And actually, it's funny, because there was once on, on Circus where I think it was for the Ringmaster multiballs. I wanted like a, a, a just a subtle animating border around the display. So I quickly drew one and put it in the game. And then Adam was playing the, the machine and he, and he just stops and steps back and he looks at the screen. He goes, who the hell did that? I'm like, uh, that was me. He goes, that's terrible. And he walks out of my office and he comes back five minutes later and hands me a sheet of paper. Use this one instead. So <laughs> That's great. Yeah. So the... Um the guy, so the, were the animations, I mean, was it difficult to draw animations and, you know, on that kind of a display? Uh, yes. It was. Um, at least to me it looked very difficult. Um, that's probably more a question, uh, for the animators, for like Adam and, well, Brian, Brian doesn't live in the US anymore. Um, but, <clears throat> you know, it was, it was difficult and paints, and, you know, painstaking to draw them because like, you know, if you wanted to use, say, a clip from a movie or something like that, you couldn't just digitize it and stick it on the screen because it just looked like crap. Um, you know, so everything had to be retouched and often just drawn from scratch, you know, you know, you know, uh, down to the pixel level. I mean, you know, these guys literally were pixel by pixel drawing things. So, and then, you know, we have space issues in the, in the game ROM too. So they're constant, you know, so the programmers and the artists are constantly, you know, at odds about, you know, it's got to be smaller, but it's got to look amazing. <laughs> You know, which is obviously an impossible task. So, so there were there were often, you know, too much dithering on this. Dithering doesn't compress well. You know, this thing is, is you know, uh, this animation is too big. We've got to cut out some frames here. And and then in in some cases, you know, big full screen animations are actually made up by um, from lots of little parts. Like I remember, like the multiple start on Circus. Um, if, if anyone remembers the animation, it starts off, you know, the cat will flip the switch and then you'll see the spark, you know, going up the, 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 the pole of the high wire. And as the spark goes up the pole, the background is sort of scrolling down on the screen. Right. Now, originally, that was just a, a basic animation, you know, one full screen frame after another, but it was huge. It took up so much space. So we ended up, we ended up cutting it up into, I think the, the cat throwing the switch is, is a regular animation, and then there are just three frames of the background that I just scroll, you know, one frame onto another, and then the spark is just a, a little sprite that I just plot in the right spot as it goes. So, so we cut down this animation from like 100 frames to four, you know, and so, so there's a lot of stuff like that. How hard was it for you to learn this, the 6809 stuff? Uh, well, the assembly I did in college was 68,000, so, so 6809 was, was, was fairly Just an easy. extension, yeah. Yeah, and um, it is a great chip to program. I mean, it is so friendly. It'll let you do whatever you want. There are, you know, the registers are laid out well. You know, the assembly language is, is great. I mean, if, if anyone, you know, anyone who's done assembly and hates it because they've only ever done Intel assembly, 
you know, doesn't know what they're missing. You know, the, the Motorola chips, I mean, it was, it was just wonderful to work on. And I, I miss it. I still miss it. Hmm. Now, did you ever have issues? I mean, because you have, unlike, say, like Data East, where they have a separate processor that you make calls to to actually draw the animations. You guys used one 6809 to do everything, well, well, except for the sound. Well, tired and taxed 6809 to do everything, yeah. Pardon me? It was a very sort of tired and taxed 6809. It had trouble a lot of time keeping up with everything we were throwing at it. It did. So you did yeah. have to program for speed. Oh, definitely, definitely. And you can see it. I mean, um, you, you can see it when you play the games. I mean, just look at, look at you know, regular blinking lights. I mean, they'll slow down from time to time when, you know, if there's a big display effect happening or, you know, there's in the background. I mean, you'll see the lamps slow down all the time. We call that bog, you know. And, and it's funny, Lyman hates bog. He would spend days and days and days just trying you know, fix one little little instance of bog, which, of course, we all should have been that diligent, but, you know. This can't all be Lyman, unfortunately. Yeah, Ly- Lyman's kind of he's a he's a real good programmer, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of figured, yeah. And so there was definitely speed. I mean, was there ever? It, it never got as bad as when I saw like uh, Johnny Mnemonic. Um, the lane change in that game was really slow. Was that because of a speed issue? Uh, you know, I I, I sort of missed Johnny Mnemonic um, because it had just come out in Melbourne when I left, and by the time I, I got here and I got settled and I got settled at work. It was already old news. So I've never really played Johnny, but I've, I've heard a lot about it. So I, I would say that's possibly caused by Bog, but I don't know for sure. So, you know, don't quote me on that. Okay. So then after Circus Voltaire, your next project was, the course, the Star Wars Episode One. Yes. But there was a fair amount of time between Circus Voltaire and Star Wars Episode One, right? Right. Um, we, you know, John and I... Well, the whole team really. We, you know, after after circus, because you know, like circus, we we played with the display um, above the playfield rather than in the back box. And so, you know, after circus, John John wanted to try an experiment with with you know different cabinet designs. You know, try and use a monitor. You know, like maybe in the back box and stuff like that. And so we we were doing experimenting, you know, with with stuff like that. And uh, let me see. So circus finished. It was late '97. And I think um, we we tried our own um, stuff until I'm tr- I'm trying to remember when Pat and George unveiled their. So you mean you were basically working on the replacement for WPC, a la John, um, right? In, in, while right. Pat and Gomez were working on their version of Pinball 2000. Right, exactly. And I think I think it was it was. Um, they came out with their version. It was probably early '98, I want to say, um, and so we had been working on ours for, for like probably three or four months. Anything you know. interesting that you guys did compared? You know, I mean, I, obviously, you know, the Lawler Gomez version won out, but I mean, was there anything that you guys did that was noteworthy that did, you know that you felt should have been implemented or, or whatever? I, I think that um, the Lawler Gomez concept is, is way greater than anything we were thinking of, um, but I, I, I loved John's des- cabinet designs. I mean, he, you know, his just industrial design for the actual box to put all the stuff in right. was amazing, and, I, and, you know, and when I look at, at what PIN 2000 turned out to be just from a, you know, you know, when you stand back and you look at the actual cabinet, I mean, it looks like 
an old man who's had a heart attack and slumped over his chessboard in the park. You know, I mean, it's just this little hunched over dark thing in the corner. You know, and, and when I can compare it to these big bright things that John had been working on, it just seems a shame that, that, you know, Pin 2000, this amazing technology and this amazing concept, you know, stuffed into a cabinet that looks worse than something that was designed in the 1920s, you know. Right. Right. So you, there was no way to get these guys together and get John to design the cabinet for Pin 2000 and, you know, you, you well, know the, what I mean? The problem is that, that Pin 2000 was expensive. And so we sunk as much money as we could into the technology and, and the cabinet suffered as a result. Oh, okay. So, all right. I mean, it so was, it was, you know, I think everyone wanted to do something bigger and better for the cabinet, but, you know, there was, there was a cost issue. So, so when they, were you in the meeting when, when, uh, when Lawler and Gomez came in with their version, their hollow pin? I, I wasn't one of the first people to see it. I mean, they, they handpicked the first few people to see it and I wasn't one of them. Um, but I was in the meeting when it was unveiled to engineering as a whole. Yeah. And what was the reaction? The reaction was amazing, you know, absolutely amazing. It was like, it, it was exactly what we needed. It was, it was after the meeting, we were all walking back to our offices, and just one after another, everyone was saying, oh, you can do this, and you can do this, and we could do, and, you know, imagine medieval madness with the castles on fire and stuff like that. And, and, and it was like we were, you know, kids going to the chocolate factory. You know, we all had these ideas. We all, you know, everyone was excited and stuff like that. I mean, it was great, great, great to see because the because the general mood of, of pinball engineering was, you know, was not great. Right, because at the time pinball was kind of on a downturn. Right, right. It was, it was, it wasn't so much on a downturn. It was more like, you know, we're shutting down pinball unless you come up with something cool. Right. So. Right. And how was management's reaction to the to the whole thing? I mean, you know, the, the the big boys, the the you know, the you know, the two guys at the top. Like Ken and Neil? Yeah. Uh, this is this is a very ironic story. Um, because I had uh, you know, in, in my office I had, you know, sort of a working prototype of of the, the John concept, my machine was one of the first to get switched over to the Pat and George concept. So, um, uh, you know, Tom and I, we were working on a demo. Uh, Tom Uban was, was sort of the lead of the software side of things. He was in charge of the new operating system and stuff like, stuff like that. And, um, <clears throat> you know, gradually as people came off other projects, we all, you know, everyone joined, you know, Tom's group, you know, working on the, the general OS. Um, I think I was the second person working on it, and then Graham West joined us, and then uh, maybe Lewis, and then finally, you know, Dwight and Lyman and, and Keith and so on. So, um, so, so Tom and I primarily were working on this demo with, with just design input from John. And, and we were really pushing heavily for the Star Wars license at this point. So we got like a, a an image of a, you know, we, we, you know, put in some, some rubber bands and switches and whatever, just drew them straight into the whitewood I had. And we, you know, we just put an image on the screen of, of like a TIE fighter just bobbing around. You know, it, it was in a similar place to um, the, the moving gate on Star Wars Episode One, except it didn't move. It was just bolted down, so you could just hit it. So I had this this ship sort of bobbing a bobbing around, and when you timed it right and you shot the ball and hit the ship, the ship exploded. And like every third ship was like big, and you'd hit it, and there'd be this huge explosion with lights and sound and everything like that. And and Tom and I stayed until like four in the morning because because. You know, very little of the, the operating system was done at that point, at least as far as pinball goes. I mean, we could put stuff on screen, 
we could make sounds, we could read switches, flashlights and kick coils, and that was about it. There was no, you know, there was no pinballness to it. There was no three balls a game or anything. You know, you'd hit start and it would just kick a ball out. You'd shoot the ball, it would drain. It hit start again, it would kick a ball, you know, and so on. And so for this demo, we wanted to make it seem as pinball-like as possible. So we had the, um, we had the ship thing going. You know, Tom and I stayed late working on, you know, ball saver, kickback, three balls a game, you know, actual, make it feel like a pinball. I added, like, when you hit the thing, I think, you know, like a score would, would come up and fade off and stuff like that. You know, and, and we got that done and we brought, we brought Neil Nicastro in the next day and he played it. And he was amazed. He was blown away. He, he, I remember I was sitting at my desk and the, the game was next to me and he was standing on the far side of the game and I remember he, he stepped back and like he put his arms up and looked to the sky and then he, and then still with his arms up, he looked, he looked back down at, at everyone else who was assembled, like me and Tom and John and Larry and, and a few others. And he's like, I see the future of pinball, you know, stretched out before me and it's, you know, it starts right here or something like that. Um, uh, you know, uh, John actually video recorded the whole thing. Um, we don't have the video anymore. I don't know what, you know, what happened. I think it just got lost in the shuffle of layoffs and stuff like that. But it would have been an amazing video to still have. Wow. So, but then after Neil played it, you know, and, you know, everyone from engineering, from, from the whole, you know, artists, sound guys, people from Midway, they were, I mean, there was a line out in my office of people just to hit this single moving ship, you know, and stuff like that. So. And you were developing Star Wars at the same time as they were developing Revenge from Mars. At the same time, they're developing the operating system, right? Correct. So all these things are happening simultaneous, and it must have just been chaos. It was chaos. It was, it was chaos. It was long nights. I mean, I don't think I had a two-day weekend for, from, you know, like March of 98 until, you know, March of 99. You know, I think I, I worked most weekends in that time, late nights. I mean, it was unbelievable. Um, it, it, you know, just, I, I, you know, the way I describe it like that, it makes it sound bad, but it wasn't. I mean, working with these people with a single goal and such energy and such focus, it was incredible. Absolutely incredible. And, I mean, when you're doing this, and then, you know, kind of like at the, at the end of 99, you know, some, some bad things happened. As yeah. far as like, they raised the price of Star Wars Episode One like five hundred bucks, the retail right. price, and a bunch of European orders got canceled because of right. the, the 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 price in that. I mean, did you feel like you were being sabotaged? Not so much sabotage; it just felt unfair. You know, I, I you know by nature I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I mean, I'm sure you've heard. I mean, the the biggest conspiracy out there was that you know. Um, Neil wanted to shut Pinball down the whole time, and he thought Pin 2000 was going to fail, and then when he saw it succeed, he made it fail. And, and you know, I think that's ridiculous. I don't think he would do that. You know, I think I... And, and I'm not saying that just because this is public. I genuinely think that that is a ridiculous concept. It, it's, um, that's interesting because I've heard other Williams guys say exactly that. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? So it's like you get two... Varying opinions on that. I guess it just I, depends I, on your I perspective. Think the reality, which which I find far easier to believe, is simply that you know, you know, even though Pin 2000 was doing well and was making money, and Pinball actually had a profitable year that year, you know, it would never ever, even if it's as popular as it was in the early 90s, it would never ever make as much money as slot machines. And so, while it's not making as much money as slot machines, it's holding the slot department back. 
And while it's holding the slot department back, the slot department isn't making as much money as it could. And I think that's what it comes down to. You know, sure, it's profitable, but it's, it, I think Larry called it like, you know, the, 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 uh, it, it seemed like a boat anchor. You know, maybe not a very heavy boat anchor, but a boat anchor nonetheless. And so they just, you know, they just cut it loose and, and let slots take off. Well, why was it holding slots back? Uh, well, you know, it's a public company, and, and the, the stockholders see, well, you've got slot, you know, this slot machine department that's funding this pinball department that even if it makes money, it's not going to make as much money as slot machines. So get rid of it and let the slot machine department flourish. Yeah, and, and the memory is so short because it used to be the pinball department was funding the slot machine department right. during the early years, especially during the IGT lawsuits. Right. Right. Well, it's not so much that, that the memory is short, it's non-existent. They don't care what happened, you know, five minutes ago. I mean, it's a public company, so right. it's, it's one of the, the downfalls of being public. Now, how was it, now, you went from doing, uh, you know, uh, 6809 assembly language programming to programming on Star Wars on the, you know, or on the PIN 2000 platform, mm-hmm. and you weren't doing assembly language anymore, right? No, that was all in, in what I like to call like C++. I mean, it was all in C++ that, you know, we didn't go crazy with it because, um, you know, it, there, there were performance issues and stuff like that. So it was, it, was, it was very much like C with little bits of C++ here and there to make things convenient. And, I mean, now all of a sudden you had infinite amount, well, not infinite, but you had a lot more memory. Yeah. You had a lot more everything, right? Right. And a lot more resources, a lot more CPU power. But, you know, we were, we were still pushing it. I mean, the PIN 2000 games bog just like the WPC games do. And we were, you know, um, uh, I don't think Star Wars did, but, but, um, Revenge from Mars hit the, hit the, hit the space ceiling fairly quickly. Really? You know, and stuff like that. I mean, we, we'd, we'd learned some, some, you know, working on Star Wars being, being just slightly behind Revenge as far as timeline goes. We, we could learn from them. And so we learned a few tricks to, to compress things better and, you know, make things fit in the ROMs better. Um, we also, because we were a little bit later, we could develop the tools some more, the, tool, the development tools, and just compress things differently, in a, but in a more efficient way and stuff like that. So, Were you, were you happy with the Star Wars product when it was all said and done? I'm happy that it was successful and that it earned money. Um, I, I'm happy with the way it used its fly. I mean, as far as a pinball machine goes, it doesn't, you know, that, that type of rule set doesn't really appeal to me, but I'm, I'm proud of it as, as far as, you know, an accomplishment and something I worked on and something I helped design. You couldn't get the rule set changed to something that was more palatable to you? I don't, I don't think it would have fit the license. You know, oh. we're, you know, we're programming, you know, we're designing for an audience, we're designing for a license, and I think a rule set like, like Circus, I don't think it really would have would have fit the license. I mean, you know, Star Wars is is all about you know it, it's very visual. There's sound, you know. I mean, and and circus is is sort of nitty gritty, you know, pinball stacking multi balls, and, and I just don't think it would have fit. Right now, and and, and plus being you know uh, so early in the pin two thousand lifestyle, I mean, we're asking operators to to spend you know more money than they did on the WPC games. You know, we had to show off the display. We had to say, this is what you're paying your extra money for. Look at all the stuff we're doing on it. You know, and then a couple of games, you know, a couple of games down the line, we'll, we'll you know, we were going to pull back the display a little bit and, and start making, you know, more traditional pinball rules again and, and use the display, you know, as, as an accent, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, it's rather than a central feature. Right, right. 
Um, now, did you ever play Wizard Blocks? Uh, a little bit. Uh, it was it was tough to get to get away to play Wizard Blocks um, for two reasons. One, we were locked up in the in the back half of Pinball Engineering um, to appease uh, Luke, the Lucas people because they didn't want you know uh, that was that was so paranoid about their intellectual property that everyone working on it had to sign these ridiculous NDAs and so on. And so only very few people were allowed back where we were. So I was a little bit out of the loop on stuff. And and I didn't really have a lot of time. Um, I didn't have a lot of time. And plus, you know, Lewis was, you know, one hand working on wizard blocks, one hand working on the operating system, just like everyone else. So, it, you know, I, I didn't want to, you know, I couldn't go in there all the time and, and you know, interrupt his work to play the game. Right. Now, tell me about Black Monday. Yeah, Black Monday. Yeah. Black Monday was interesting because, um, as you as you probably recall, it was the mon- the day after Pinball Expo of '99. Right. Um, and and at that expo, we had uh, Star Wars was the expo game. We had them all networked, you know, with the tournament system that that Tom and Lyman and I worked on, you know, staying up all night every day the week before working on this thing, and then babysitting it all through expo. You know, so so basically how it worked, you know, would would spend all day at Expo, then go to work for a couple of hours and make changes to the tournament systems, and then get back to Expo early the next day to update all the machines. And so we did this, and then so so I, I remember it was there were rumors about some meeting on Monday, and and I was so sick of all the rumor nonsense. I asked Jim Patler, who was the head of engineering, who took over after Larry left. Um, you know, I said, is there any truth to this rumor on Monday? And, and he just laid into me. He said, I'm so sick of these rumors and meetings. Nothing's happening on Monday, blah, 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 blah. And, and, you know, I'm like, all right, Jim, just calm down. I just wanted to know because I was going to take the morning off and sleep in and, you know, like clean my apartment and pay bills and stuff. And he's like, oh, yeah, that's fine. You can take the whole day off, you know, whatever. So so here I am, Monday morning, sleeping sleeping away, and the phone rings. And it, it's a friend of mine who, who, you know, knows many people at Williams as well. Um, and, and she's like, you know, what are you still doing in bed? It's such a lovely day. Get up, go to work, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, whatever. And I hung up the phone and I went back to sleep. An hour later, she calls me back and she said, maybe you shouldn't go into work today. And I knew right then. I said, you know, they shut us down, didn't they? And she goes, yeah. So. Wow. Man. So what did you do after that? You went over to the slot machines because you're a green card, right? Right. I pretty much just, you know, I, I, I talked to, to Ken Fidesna, um, and Neil, and they were over at Midway. They wanted me to move to Midway, but I, I couldn't, you know, my hands were tied. And, um, uh, so I basically, you know, I just had to stay in the slot department. Now, it, you know, I, I still got, you know, um, like Ted and Ted Estes and Bill Grupp and a few other people that I, that I knew well were also in the slot department. So it wasn't so bad. It wasn't like I was being sent into Siberia or anything like that. And, and we had, you know, we had fun there. We were working on a new OS for the slot team and stuff like that. So that was pretty good. Yeah, I bet you were working on a new OS because wasn't the old slot OS like a disaster? It was a complete disaster. It was like, you know, a house of cards built, you know, with tissue paper. Right. Right, and wasn't that the operating system that that got that got pimped by the gaming commission because there was some somebody put a dollar bill in and hit some sequence of buttons and it gave them twenty bucks worth of credits or something like that? Yeah, there were there were uh, there were a lot of problems with the original um, slot OS. Uh, I really don't know the details, so I probably shouldn't talk about it. Um, but but I you know there were there were a few things 
um, a few things like that. Also, the hardware wasn't very good, and it was, it was, you know, we were, you know, our main goal was, you know, first to create something that was more stable, and second to create something that was easier for the game programmers, so that there was, there was less that they had to worry about and deal with. Right. Okay. Basically create the slot machine equivalent of Apple. Right, right. And that was well documented, well laid out, and well everything. Exactly. Right. So, you, you, you stayed a year and a half at the slot division? Yeah, like, like Pinball shut down um, in November of 99, and I, I was there until March of 01. And then where'd you go? Then I went to Cisco, where I was paired up again with Ted and Tom and, and Bill, and I was, at, uh, I was at Cisco working on routers for like four years until, uh, when was it? Like September of 05. And now you're at another gaming company, aren't you? Well, right. After Cisco, I went to Midway, and I worked with, with George Gomez and Graham West and, and several other ex-pinball people on, um, on the PlayStation 2 game and Xbox uh, called NBA Ballers Phenom. And, and that was a lot of fun. I mean, working with George and Graham and everything again was just terrific. And mm-hmm. now, as of January, I'm at Eugene Jarvis's company called Raw Thrills, back in CoinOp again, which is where I feel I belong. And what are you working on there? Um, we're just about to go into production on a on a racing game called The Fast and the Furious Drift. So, gotcha. And that yeah. and this is fun. Oh, this is loads of fun. This is very much like what working on pinball was like. A small, you know, a small group, lots of talent. You know, very creative. You know, um, it's a small private company, so there are no stupid stockholders to worry about or anything like that. Um, the company's run by, by Eugene Jarvis and Andy Eloff, both of whom are engineers, recent engineers, so then, you know, there's no management bullshit we have to deal with, so it's great. Yeah, Eugene's a genius, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah I mean, him and Larry, they were, they were paired off for some serious winners in the coin-op biz. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, right. Did you have a chance to work at Larry's company at all? Uh, no, I'm, I, I'm not a big fan of the whole gambling thing. So, right. So and and you know Larry and Duncan and Scott they're all aware of that. So you know I I I haven't been presented with an opportunity because they know I probably wouldn't take one. Good for no, you. You don't want to be stealing money from little old ladies, right? It, it's not stealing. It's just you know I just you know I, I mean, know, I'm not I'm opposed just... to it. I don't think it should be illegal. I just you know right. don't want to work in that in that area. I understand. Believe me, I understand. All right. Is there anything else? I've, is there anything I left out or anything you want to add? Um. Not that I can think of. Okay. All right, Cameron. I really, really appreciate you spending the time with us. Um, This is great. All right. Well, thank you very much. All right. All right. Take care, Cameron. See ya. Bye. Bye. Okay. That was our interview with Cameron Silver. He uh, worked on uh, many of the Williams, classic Williams 90s WPC games, Scared Stiff, Circus Voltaire, and, of course, the Pinball 2000 Star Wars Episode One and the Ticket Tack Toe game, which was a redemption WPC game. And again, I thank Cameron for his time. I really appreciate him uh, uh, kicking in to uh, talk to us here at TopCast. And I'll talk to you next time.